Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 358 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today. Helps you lead like never before. Uh, Man, I am so excited to bring you today's episode. My guest is Sam Collier. He's been on the show before. We'll be there again. And yeah, we talk about what's happening when it comes to race relations in America. I have been learning a lot over the last few months, as a lot of Caucasian leaders have been. You know, always had this close to my heart, but really this is a very, I think, important season And I'm hoping and praying things are different moving forward. And Sam and I have a very honest discourse about growing up black in America, what it takes to make it in a white world and how white people can use their influence to help bring about racial reconciliation. I think you're going to love it. This episode is brought to you by the Global Leadership Summit. You can get $20 off the individual ticket rate to the GLS now through August 6th when you use the code CARRYPODCAST at globalleadership.org. And by Remodel Health, man, we have saved listeners over $1.5 million on premiums. And you can learn how by going to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. You'll get a free resource from there, a church buyer's guide, remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Well, uh, Sam is an author, a podcaster. He's got a brand new book called A Greater Story. And uh, he talks about what it was like growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s in Black America, what it takes to make it for him in a white world. And I'll tell you, this is a fascinating conversation, important. We've had a few of those in uh, or on the podcast over the summer. And I think it's probably a defining characteristic of our generation. I think 30, 40 years from now, when people look back, What we did about racial reconciliation will be more important than what we even did about coronavirus, as crazy and as terrible as that is. Sam is a pastor, speaker, writer, host of the Greater Story podcast and TV show. He is a speaker and host at North Point Ministries. He also communicates nationally and internationally with the Rethink Group, Orange Network, Orange Tour, Alpha International Leadership Conference, Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit, the Culture Conference, and so much more. He's been on numerous TV shows. We talk about the Steve Harvey show here, and he lives with his wife, Tony. Yeah, my Tony and his Tony get along great, and their kids in Atlanta, Georgia. And his new book releases today, so I hope you will check that out. Well, uh, the Global Leadership Summit, speaking of which, is almost here. And Sam, along with other friends and very renowned faculty, are either part of the past or the current summit. This year's faculty includes Craig Rochelle, Nona Jones, Nike Director Beth Comstock, Sadie Robertson-Huff, T.D. Jakes, and Lisa Turkhurst. And 2020 has been a year like never before, so they have a summit like never before with an in-person and enhanced digital experience. Uh, The GLS will be telecast live in HD from Chicago to hundreds of host locations. You can get $20 off the individual ticket rate now through August 6th by using the code CARRYPODCAST when you check out at globalleadership.org. So make sure you do that now. It's coming up real soon, globalleadership.org. Use the coupon code CARRYPODCAST. And then remodel health. So one of the big challenges right now, and coronavirus has only made this more interesting, is health insurance for the people you care about. And healthcare can be confusing, especially as a leader within an organization. But what if you can have an industry expert come alongside with you, not only to help you understand your options, 
but a solution that could save you and your employees hundreds of thousands of dollars. If that sounds too good to be true, in the last 18 months, the listeners to this podcast alone have saved, I'm not making this up, $1.5 million in healthcare premiums. And without cutting benefits, in fact, in some cases, churches have improved their benefits. So what are you waiting for? You need to check out remodelhealth.com forward slash carry and you can learn more and also download your free church buyer's guide. I know you're thinking about budgets already for 2021. So don't hesitate. Go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Become one of the churches that saved a million and a half dollars in the last 18 months. That's pretty incredible. And by the way, we really trust our partners on this show. That's why we don't talk about them unless we have confidence in them. So, um, hey, if you're new to the show, please subscribe and uh, share it on social. We've also got show notes. You can find episode show notes at kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 358. And I've got a brand new resource I want to just hint a little bit with you. A lot of people are talking about the importance of culture and even virtual team culture. So if you want to create better values, like cultural values for your church, I've got a brand new three-step guide to developing them that you can get by texting the word better values, better values to 33777. Just better values to 33777. Anyway, without further ado, my conversation with Sam Collier. Sam, welcome back. Man, it was a whole other world last time we were together on this show, was it not? Man, I am just I get every honored every time you have me here. It it was another world. We, I mean, this is we are living in a new reality right now, and I am just all around the world, really. I mean, who thought that something could happen that would stop the entire world? I know. I know. I always, I'm thinking back. I mean, it's August now when this is airing. And, you know, if somebody said, hey, all the borders will be shut down, there'll be this virus, uh, the global economy will collapse, uh, people will be scared to go out, you'll be lining up for food. It's like you saw, like I'm older than you are. I remember the bread lines from like the communist Eastern Bloc and people would line up for food, yeah. right? And I'm like, yeah, that'll never happen here. People are wearing masks and it's like, whoa, like that's, that's insane. But here we are and an exciting moment in some ways and a devastating moment in some ways. So we're going to go all over yeah. the place. You got a brand new book out today too, correct? I am just overwhelmed um, that this book is out. The The amount of love that I have received from this, this has been a three-year journey. It's really been a five to six-year journey when the whole thing happened with Steve on the Steve Harvey show. I was going to say, what year was that with Steve Harvey? Man, I, I, I can't give you the exact date, but I know it was six years ago. I was, because yeah, yeah. I'm 31 now. And I was on it when I was 25, so maybe yeah, about six years. And uh, man, it's just it's just crazy to think that we would be here today and that a book would happen. And you know, I mean, you're an author, but this is my first major like publishing release. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. this is I, your, you know, I'm. <laughs> it's like Christmas. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. And tell so, us uh, for those who don't know the story, I haven't seen the clip. And I got to say, we've been friends for years, for almost five or six years. Yeah. So that must have happened after you and I met or before you and I met. And uh, I mean, I, I just hadn't watched the clip. And then I watched the clip recently getting ready to interview you again. And I like bawled like a baby, just like I was gone. So explain to everyone <laughs> the journey that led you up to the Steve Harvey show. Man, um, 
<sighs> you know, I, I, I'm going to tell the story here. I never tell it because I'm always like, oh, I got to save it for churches. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right. But I'm telling, I, I, but I'm going to say here, especially because this is the day that it's out and I just love you. And um, I think, you know, I was two months when I got adopted, me and my twin sister, we got adopted together and um, we got adopted and rescued uh, out of poverty. Our mother was 21 when she had us and she had three kids already. So that's five kids, age 21 and welfare, dad addicted to crack and all types of substances. And so he left the picture. She didn't have enough money to take care of the three. So she gives me and my twin sister up, you know, for adoption. And we do get adopted, but the, the the story that led up to our adoption is even wilder because my father um, was in the middle of his second divorce, and uh, my father being my adoptive father, um, and he went to the laundromat on a Sunday to just wash his clothes. And he usually went on a Saturday, but this day he went on a Sunday. And uh, my mother, my adoptive mother, was in there, and she was in the middle of her first divorce, married to a Black Panther. And um, she was like there. The Black Panther, to, right? So, like, you know, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, the I'm movement, Black Pan- like, yeah, from the Black Panther Party. Um, and he was extremely aggressive. Not, not all the Black Panthers were aggressive, but a lot of them were. And um, he was. And so he had hit her in the head with the hammer the night before. Um, and, and honestly, man, just between us and all the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> no one's listening. It's okay. Uh, it's just you and me, Sam. Right. He, uh, he, you know, she was, she was going to go kill him that day. She, her former so she husband, was she was going to go and murder her, her soon to be divorced husband. Her, yeah. Because she said by any means necessary, I have to get out of this situation. And I get it. I mean, it was extreme abuse and control and all of that. And so she meets my dad that day, doesn't go and kill her ex-husband and they start dating. They go, they both go through their divorces. They give their life to Christ for the mm. first time. And they say, this is our opportunity to do it right. They find out my, they get married. They find out my mother can't have kids. So they come down to Augusta, Georgia, where we had just been given up for adoption two months prior. And so you're in they, the system, right? At that I'm point, in the system. Yeah. I'm in the system as an infant and you know, everything about our life said that it was going to be over. They came to adopt us. The, the adoption lady said, you don't want to adopt them. They're probably going to be mentally challenged because of where they come from. Because, because of the drug addiction and everything? or Yeah, yeah, drugs. The, my, they said that they traced some of my mother's steps back to prostitution houses. And so they said, you're probably, they said, you know, this is, if you want to do it right, you guys are Christians. Um, this is not your, this is not going to be it. They're probably not going to be much. And so I know. And so my, my parents adopt us anyway. And they said, they believe that God told them, no, it's something special about them. Long story short, my sister gets all A's from kindergarten up to 12th grade and goes full scholarship to Georgia tech and Spelman becomes an industrial engineer. And I turn into me, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, all the stuff that, you know, God's just been afforded, afforded me to do for ministry, to radio, to television, all these other things. Oh, dude, just, I mean, it's been just such a joy to watch. And we've told the story of how we met uh, once or twice on this show before, but it was before anyone knew who Sam, Sam Collier was. But just so to be there, 
you know, cheering you on and watching what God's doing in your life and seeing you really emerge as a leadership voice that uh, everybody respects has mm-hmm. been exceptional. Carrie, don't make me cry. It's too, it's too soon in the show, man. <laughs> <laughs> so pick up the story. So your mom and dad, new chapter, they take the kids that nobody was supposed to take because it's too yeah. challenging and these kids aren't going to turn out anyway. Yeah, and black family. So right. nobody ever knew we were adopted because we all looked alike. Right. So your parents and, are black. You're black. Yeah. Yeah. And um, anyway, man, God moved in our story. Grew up middle class. weren't super. You know, we weren't super rich, but we had you know had everything that we needed. Didn't have everything we wanted, but had everything that we needed. Really balanced childhood, rooted in black Christianity. You know, and I say black Christianity just in terms of black theology, black church all that, you know, T.D. Jakes was playing in the house every Sunday morning, you know, and Joyce Myers would show up every now and then, but for the most part, <laughs> it was T.D. Jakes. And so, man, we, we just, we were living our life. And then right around 24, my dad erupts during uh, uh, NFL football as we, you know, we're watching it as the immediate family together, like we do every Sunday. He erupts and he says, it's time. And we're like, it's time. What do you... He said, it's time to go find your parents. <laughs> I mean, it was right. just in the middle of an NFL game. Right. And, and, and I, I, I said, what? He, he said, and, and Steve Harvey is going to help you do it. God told me. So, so let's pause for a second. <laughs> so my dad has had, he has, and he has, you know what I mean? Yeah. A barbershop down on Auburn Avenue, right across the street from the Mount King Jr. Center. I wanted to ask you about that with your story. So is that close to Ebenezer Baptist Church, like the whole deal, that neighborhood? My dad's barbershop was across the street from Ebenezer. Okay. It is across the street. From I've been Ebenezer. there. I know that neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right? Auburn Avenue, the home of civil rights, where Martin Luther yes, King sir. grew up, um, where he pastored, where he started the SCLC, yeah. Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which, is, which was his only organization. The King Center is right there, too. The above ground tombs of MLK and Coretta sit you know, right there. And so um, he had a barbershop there. And every day, you know, when you're in the barbershop, you do the same thing. You cut hair, you eat, you take some naps, you watch TV. So he would watch Steve Harvey every day when when Steve Harvey took Oprah's slot on, on NBC, I believe. And so he said while he was watching Steve one day, God told him that Steve Harvey was going to help us find our biological family. And he doesn't know Steve. So fast, it's like saying Oprah's going to help, right? Like he did, he's not oh, buddies with Steve. It, it was so ridiculous when he said it, I got up and walked out of the room. I, I left the house. I said, I'm out. I Dad's can't. lost it. I was like, he's lost his mind. He was, he was known for doing some crazy stuff. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So I said, I'm out of here. You, you've lost your mind. And he convinces my sister to write into the show two weeks later. And, I, and I'm asking her, why did you do it? And she says, well, he just kept yelling. So my dad, he's from the country. So he, you know, when he talks normally, it's a yell. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> to him, it's normal. To, you know, to everybody else, it's like, why are you talking so loud? You know? So so it really more so sounded like this. It's time to go find your parents. And the Steve Harvey is going to help you find them. I said, what? <laughs> and so anyway, a year goes by, nothing happens. And... One day my phone rings. It's a Monday. It's 3 p.m. It's my sister. I answer the phone. She, I said, hello. She says, hey, the Steve Harvey show just called me. They're going to call you by and, and hung up the phone. Wow. She's mad. She's, you know, she's bad. And so 
a, a minute goes by, my phone rings, and it's the, it's I answer, hello, hey, this is Dorothy from the Steve Harvey Show. Um, I this is my first week on the job. She just had left Jerry Springer, and I was like, what? He just <laughs> left Jerry Springer. Oh, that's always a good setup. I mean, it was ridiculous. And she said, you know, we out of a hundred stories that they put on my desk today, yours was the top story. We think we can help you find your biological family. Do you want to do you want to do it? I said, let me call you back. I called my sister. My sister said she did not want to do it, hmm. but we I feel like we need to do it. I called her back. And long story short, they fly me, my sister, my adoptive parents up to Chicago where they were taping. When we got there, they said, we did not find anybody. We're so sorry. We hired a private detective, but we want to bring you on the show to make a plea that maybe your biological family would show up. They bring us on the show. Steve goes through it. He says, they're going to make a plea. They go to a break. They come back after the break. And Steve says, hey, I know we said we didn't find your birth mother, but that's not true. Your birth mother is here. Eleanor, come on out. And on national television, we meet a biological mother and our three siblings that we did not know we had for the first time. Can I slow you down? Because when I watched the clip, your sister got up right away. Yeah. And um, you just sat there with your head down in between your knees for like, I don't know, 60, 90 seconds. What were you thinking? What were you feeling? <laughs> um. Carry, carry, though. I said I was going to be, I said I wasn't. I know. I'm, I'm holding it together, too, Sam. Sort of. I, um, no, I'm not. I, um, it was so many emotions. I didn't know which one to choose. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I didn't know if I should have been mad at Steve. Because <laughs> he lied to you. Yeah. <laughs> Lying. I didn't know if I should be upset with my mother, my biological mother, for giving us up. I didn't know if I should be grateful for the fact that God intervened and wrote and you know turned our mess into a miracle. And then I was on national television, and 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 then and then I was like, then I was thinking, I think everybody wants me to cry, and I'm trying to, but I I'm just in shock. You know, it was just so yeah. yeah. And so I just put my head down because. I said, I need to gather, I need to figure out what's going on. And as my head is down and I'm deciphering through all the all of these emotions, God says to me audibly, and audibly is different depending on who you're talking to. For me, yeah. it's not like a speaker comes out of the wall. You heard <laughs> a voice. Yeah, I heard a voice and he said to me, you're on national television, snap out of it. <laughs> That's a great voice. <laughs> and I said, okay. And he says, we can deal with these emotions later. But right now you need to hug your mother. Mm. And you need to embrace her because this is hard for her too. And so I snap out of it. I get up and I embrace her. And I'm like, you know, and then we sit down and I, I just ask her if she's okay. You know, and it's just this moment of, but it was, uh, uh, it was, it was, it was wild. And then your siblings come out, who you you kind of knew existed. Did you know that you had siblings before? Here's what I we never knew. Here's what our parents told us. Because people always ask me, you know, when did you know that you were adopted? And from you know, from day one, from since I can remember, my parents told us, you know, you guys are adopted. You know, you guys are adopted. You knew you guys are adopted. So they so never we, pretended you weren't or 
anything. never pretended. Um, they made it a cool thing. It was like, hey, you know, we adopted you. And, we, and you know, we were like two, you know, one, two years old. And so we're like, what's that? And they're like, well, your, your mother that had you couldn't take care of you, we don't think. So we're here to take care of you. And so it was just this cool thing. And we were like, yay. You know, like it was like, <laughs> and you feed me and so you love started, me and you read me stories and it's great. Yeah. And you, right. <laughs> and so we started going to like preschool and telling everybody we were adopted. We were like, hey, we're adopted. We're adopted. And all the other kids that were adopted were like, we are too. <laughs> and then all the other kids that weren't adopted started going home and telling their parents, can we be adopted? You know? <laughs> <laughs> And so it was just, you know, it was always kind of, you know, just this cool thing. And so as, as far as I can remember, they just, they would tell us, they say, we think you have brothers and sisters, but we don't know. Because I think it was a closed adoption. Sure. Um, and so they said, we think you do, but we don't know. We think your mother was poor, but we don't know. But we're here now. And we love you. And we, and that, so we didn't know. So, so, when he's, when, so when he says, come on out, and your siblings are here, I mean, it was just like, for the first time in our lives, we saw people we looked like. And I, I, I don't, you know, I don't, this is, people are listening so they can't see the pictures, but I mean, if you see my brother, he looks exactly like me. I mean, it's, my sisters are like identical. Hmm. It's scary. You wow. know, I have a weird laugh. You know, my laugh is kind of. Yeah, weird. yeah. I know, I know the same call your laugh. Yeah. Right. This, and I enjoy it. We went out to eat that night and someone made a joke. Everyone laughed. We all had the same laugh. Get out. So some it of that's was, what? Genetic or who knows? Who knows what that is? Who knows? I, I mean, <laughs> DNA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. And okay, let me, let me ask you this because everything shapes us as a leader. How do you think at this point in your life that shaped you into who you are, the whole story, being adopted, not knowing your birth mother until relatively recently, not knowing your siblings until recently, uh, being born into that kind of poverty and addiction and then being uh, pulled out of it into adoption and uh, a different kind of upbringing. I mean, we're all, I can't tell you, Sam. I mean, some of our, our leaders listening have gone back to episode one and the number of times, and this is not intentional, um, but we've had so many different guests who have said, I had a really tough childhood and I kind of rose above the odds. And, you know, here I am running this in business or here I am in ministry or whatever that happens to be. I want to know how it shaped you. Yeah, I mean, um, it did not shape me like many adoption stories shape people. Um, which which is something that I have discovered over the years as I've navigated telling this story and doing adoption conferences and talking to people and even doing church services of telling this story. And then you hear these stories. A large part of this, I think, was my dad who always told me, and this is my adoptive dad, who always told me um, that it's, you know, it's not about the cards you've been dealt, it's about how you play your hand. And so he never let us focus on the past. It was like, okay, cool. You can't, you know, and we, and frankly, we didn't really know where we came from either, which may have been a blessing maybe in disguise, but 
Um, he, we, we knew that maybe it was poverty. I mean, you can process it as abandonment or what does that mean about me? But my dad always said it, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you're in a loving family and that you have all the potential in the world to be anything that God wants you to be. And so the question is, what are you going to do now with what God has given you? And so I think for me, how it shaped me is it, it forced me, and I learned this more and more over the years, to take advantage of the opportunity that was in front of me and to not become a victim to my circumstances, but to write my own story, with, obviously with the grace of God. I think the other thing that is done for me now being 31 as a leader, leading in all these different places, I'm young, most, I'm usually the youngest most of the time in a lot of these rooms, is it, it's caused me to ask the question, you know, what is influence really about? And what is the responsibility of influence? Because when I think about my parents, they didn't have to adopt us. My dad, he's, this is his third marriage, you know, like, my dad was 50, like three when he adopted us. So he's 83 now. My mother is in her 70s. She has all time. They're, they're just older. So for them that late in their life to leverage their money, their resources, their time, their care to steward two twins for 18 years. It makes it actually what why does God give us influence and what are we really supposed to do with it? How are we to be good stewards over the life that we have now lived, which even takes us, we're going to talk maybe about race in a second, but it's it's the whole race conversation and all that. It's like, you know, to my white leader friends and all that, it's, you know, God's given you so much, not all, but there are many. What is the, you know, what, why, what is God, why did he give it to you? And what is the cost of that? Being even in America makes me ask that question all the time. Why was I born in America, not in a third world country, you know, with, with poverty in it? You know, what, what is the price of influence? What is the cost of it? What is the responsibility of it? And how do I now leverage what God has given me to help someone that doesn't have it or to make the world a better place? So I think that's that's been the season I'm in now, Carrie, is how do I, lack of a better phrase, pay God back for what he gave me? And why did he give it to me? And I know it wasn't just because he liked me more than other people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that that's kind of where I'm at. Okay, just to tie a bow on, on that a little bit, not that, you know, you can reduce a story to 15, 20 minutes, but uh, the book tells that story and sort of your story. What would your hope be for readers who read the book? And then I want to talk about this moment culturally where we are uh, for African-Americans with the change that seems to be underway this summer and uh, dissect that with you. Uh, but tell me a little bit about the book and it tells your story and what's your hope for readers as they access it? Yeah, I think uh, the book, it opens with the Steve Harvey moment. So we kind of unpack it. We give details that I've not been able to share today because it's just so much. I mean, you jump into this, mm -hmm. jump into um, And then we spend maybe about a fourth of the book talking about what it means to grow up black in America and how that shaped me. And we talk about Arvin, we talk about fatherlessness, home, all these other things and relate it back to adoption of why, you know, my father wasn't there and what that actually means. And, um, and, and, and we kind of just tell the story of how I went from a mess to a miracle. Hmm. And my hope is that as people kind of read that journey, 
they are encouraged that whatever mess they are in, and you know, during this time we all are in a mess, right? We got COVID nineteen happening. We've got you know some of the greatest racial tension sixth since the sixties in America right now. We're all in a mess. We're trying to figure out how to move forward. And I, my hope is that people would see that God can take a mess and turn it into a miracle if you let him. And there are certain moments in every small decision um, helps to create a pathway to that miracle. And then we spend some time in there unpacking how to actually access the greater story that God, basically the purpose-driven life. There's a purpose-driven life moment in there hmm. where we kind of give a formula to purpose because all of that was just involved in my story into taking me from that situation to where it was now. Because not everybody that, that gets adopted and is raised in a middle-class family turns into my sister. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah so, exactly. How do you, what, you know, what are the extra keys that you need to actually excel in this life and to excel in the kingdom um, under the principles of Christ? And so I just hope that people are encouraged that no matter what they're going through and no matter what their circumstances are, they don't have to be a victim of that, but that with God, they can overcome. So I want to uh, talk about uh, growing up black in America. So I'm Canadian, definitely Caucasian. Uh, we've been friends for years and you and I have talked uh, a fair bit in the midst of, and we're obviously recording this before August 4th, but you know, with the death of George Floyd and uh, the tension that we have and the thirst for racial reconciliation, I've really benefited from your voice. And part of it, honestly, Sam, transparently, is uh, I think it's hard for those of us who didn't grow up in that circumstance to imagine yeah. what it's like. So I would love for you to take me through that lens as it shaped your life. And remember, you're only 31. I mean, so you were born, what year were you born? 19? 1988. 1988. So this is like recent history. This is not like, oh yeah, you know, you were around in the 50s. No, 1988. <laughs> so we're yeah. talking like your childhood was a late 90s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So 100%. walk us through what it was like. Wow. Well, you know, I think I had the benefit of growing up in Atlanta mm -hmm. and Atlanta, Georgia, depending on where you are around the world, in the States is, you know, revered as like black Hollywood. So it is the it is the birthplace of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It is the birthplace of civil rights, civil rights movement here. Um, we had so much black excellence come out of this city that when I was growing up um, and I'm going to talk about the oppression, I was aware of the oppression. But I saw so many faces of black leaders that overcame hmm. in spite of the oppression that I never saw the oppression as a crutch or as, or, or, or as a reason that I could not succeed. But at the same time, I was educated heavily on what you need to do to overcome the oppression. And, and can I just add a little bit of context? If you were born in 1988, in 1987, I just rewatched a clip of that recently. There was the Oprah show in North Fulton County which is yeah. almost Atlanta, yeah. which was the last white county in the South. And basically African-Americans were not allowed to live there right up That's until right. the 80s. And I mean, that clip's on YouTube. We'll link to it in the show notes. But um, so it's not like there wasn't racism in Atlanta. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So just, I mean, just to frame it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the South. I mean, when you think of the United States, it's the South. I mean, I'm in I'm doing this episode right now in California. Me and you are talking because yeah. we do with traveling by the grace of God during COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and California is different than Atlanta. Um, it doesn't have the history. Um, New York is different than the South. The South, you know, when we talk about um, the Civil War, right? I mean, with the Confederate States and the Union, you know, all these other things. It's like this is where the Confederacy lived. This is where it was birthed. So there are even places now in Georgia where you can drive and Confederate flags fly mm-hmm. at, you know, from houses. They fly at certain capitals. I mean, so, and and we're talking about, you know, the Confederate flag, and we, I'm not going to get into that right now, but a large part of it, I mean, represents oppression. You know, the Confederate army was fighting to keep us in slavery. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? It's so, um, among other things, but that was one of the main tenets. But you grew up and saw Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You saw others. Uh, Tyler Perry has a studio there, et cetera, et cetera. You don't talk about Black Hollywood. But, I mean, there's lots and lots of role models for you far beyond that list growing up. So I didn't want to interrupt you, but I did want to frame the context for people. I spent a lot of time in Atlanta, so I know a little bit about the context, not nearly as much as you. So, Okay. Pick, pick up the narrative. No, no, no. You, you're one. You're 100 right about that. And I would say, yeah, because we had all of these freedom fighters that were that we were aware of, and it was taught. Um, they showed us how to overcome. Now, that's not to say that there was nothing to overcome, because I think a lot of people hear that and they go, "Oh, well, black people can just, you know, MLK did it, and Harriet Tubman did it, and always like." And, and I would say, honestly, to be totally transparent. <laughs> Uh, and I love how free we can be. I yeah. probably had that like, oh, well, you just overcome that attitude, but it's not that simple, is mm-hmm. it? No, I think it's it's a sad reality. The but the but the silver lining in the cloud is that you do have a pathway out of it, but it is an unfortunate pathway mm. that yeah. you should not have to have. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Very well and said. So, Very well so, said. And so the the pathway goes a little something like this. You have to work twice as harder than a white person to succeed. That was, I, I can't tell you the amount of times I heard that. Hey, if you And that was expect, from what? Your parents, teachers, whatever? That was from my parents. That was from my coaches. That was from my uncles. That was from my mentors. That was from Black America. Everyone said it. I mean, it was who. I mean, every time we had a motivational speaker, because I grew up in the black, I grew up in the black context, all black neighborhood, all black school, all black, so on and so forth. Um, we heard that from the from everyone, and it was being black in America means that you don't have the luxury of underachieving. You have to overachieve to to even be normal to succeed. You have to overachieve. And so they taught us that. And so, and they would, I mean, even as explicit as, okay, if the white person is rehearsing their line, let's just say it's theater. Sure. The white person is rehearsing their lines, you know, two times, you need to rehearse it five. Wow. You need to know it better because you'll be tested harder. The expectations will be greater and the obstacles will be heavier and will be taller. So- That's just what you know, you know? And so 
because of Martin Luther King Jr. and because of all the other people that that did that, you had the confidence to know, well, if I do that, I, you know, I can succeed. I can succeed. I know racism is still alive. I know prejudice is still alive. I know s- systemic oppression is still alive, but I can overcome. I just have to work harder. And so that's what you do. You work extremely hard. And another another lesson, right, that you learn growing up black is with law enforcement. It's, mm-hmm. hey, when you get pulled over, do not make a move, right? Like this could, it could be your, it could go south very quick. And the moment you as a black man get thrown into the justice system, your life's over. I mean, that's what they told us. Wow. Is that, can I, can I just ask, and I've been trying to listen along with many, many other uh, non-black leaders uh, to friends and uh, between podcasts, personal conversations, uh, and other conversations I've had with African-Americans, is that almost a universal script where you are told, like I've heard everyone from uh, Dr. Tony Evans to George Raveling to I think Albert Tate, I don't want to put words in Albert's mouth, to, you know, you say there's almost a script. Huh? You'll put it in (laughs) Albert's mouth. Okay. I'll put it in his mouth. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I definitely America. You know, yeah. I can't speak for other nations. No, I no, but just in America, it's, it's like, similar. so walk through the protocol. Yeah. How are you taught to think about being pulled over for, you know, speeding or, you know, a uh, uh, defective brake light or something like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make it plain. Be as nice as possible, Sam. That's that's the plainest that my, be the nicest. It doesn't matter what they say to you. They could curse you out, call you the N-word spit in your face, do not react. Because that is the only system that if if they have the power, if they say that it was assault, if they say you were talking back, if they say you were out of line, if they say they were threatened, you get thrown into the system off of the word of a white cop. And so you be as nice as you can be and you take whatever abuse you have to take. Now, obviously, if you're getting beat up and if you're yeah. getting, you know, killed, that's a different story. But even at that, it's like you do not do anything to set a cop off because it's your last, it could be the beginning of the end for you. And so it looks like, so whenever we got pulled over, we were nervous. It, we were afraid. We were like, you breathing hard. If I was, I remember if I was ever talking on the phone, right, you know, when cell phones came out and um, got to hang up. Yeah, I'm like, I'm getting pulled over. Let me call you back. <laughs> like, you know, you know, and and you did everything you could. It's like, you know, 10 and 2, keep your hands up. Um, I had a friend of mine that told me recently, he was with a, some friends in a car. We, we grew the same age, and he got pulled over. And the and it was and and a police walked up, and the first thing he said was, So where's the weed? Wow. Where's the weed? And he was like, he went off on him because his dad was a cop at the time, you know, black guy. His dad had to tell him, like, don't ever do that. But he was like, what are you talking like? We just riding around. We're doing, you know, what makes you think we have weed in the, I mean, just so um, anyway, it, it, it is a, it is an experience um, with, with, with law enforcement. It, it, it is unfortunate because when you compare it to what your white friends hear, you know, it's completely different. Well, you know, I, I, and I would say too, because you and I have talked about this, but you know, sure, anybody who gets pulled over, and I don't get pulled over a lot, but when I have, yeah, your heart races, you hang up the phone, 
you're extra polite. But I think in a previous conversation you and I had, it never occurred to me. Like it just never occurred to me that this could be the beginning of the end. You know, that it just, it just never occurred to me that, you know, if I'm speeding, yes, please. You know, the only question in my mind is, is he going to let me off? Is he going to drop it? You were doing, you know, 80 in a 60 zone, but I'm going to drop it to, to 70 to give mm-hmm. you a break. Or, or is it, he's just going to like, give me the regular ticket. It just never occurred to me that I would be arrested for that or that he was going to look for something else. Like it just, it never did. And listen, I know a lot of good cops. You know, a lot of good cops. This oh, is yeah, not cop are, bashing. Are amazing cops out there. I think we, I want to take a moment and, and honor them and thank them for their, because they're black cops, they're white cops. I mean, the greatest thing about where we are right now in America, the things of George Floyd and just the, right. I call, I, I, you know, I coined it the liberation of black and brown people around the world. The movement that we're in right now is that you get white cops and black cops speaking up yeah, on behalf of this. And so that I think when unity, that's why it feels different this time, because because there's a sense of unity. I've never been more hopeful than I've ever been this country and us moving forward in the last 40 years than right now, because there is a sense of unity and, a, and, a, and, and everyone saying Hey, we got. There's a problem with there are there are a lot of bad apples in the bunch. I won't get into the argument around. There are certain people that believe you know it mm-hmm. was the 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 police system was built this way and it needs to just be torn down all the way. And it was built this way. So let me go ahead and give credence. Right, we know the origin of um, policing in America was slavery. Yeah, so I did not know that until you told me that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, you want to give the thumbnail pretty, of that just to not leave people dangling on that. What, what, how did that yeah, happen? For sure. So the first, the first officers that ever existed were birthed out of slavery, and they were created to keep slaves in check. So if slaves ran away, they would go get them. If slaves did, you know, were doing anything bad, they would beat them. They would, you know, sometimes hang them, kill them. They were called slave catchers, um, and so. Out of that system, as 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 the years matriculated and as life matriculated, as America grew, those slave catchers became the police department. <laughs> I did so, not know that. Yeah, a lot of the, and a lot of the ethos that is within the law enforcement system and a lot of the policies came out of a system of segregation and of oppression and of slavery and. There were there were moments when we got integrated, right? When, when with the civil rights movement, where black cops were being brought into the force and could not change in the same room as a white cop. Wow. And so we're talking about years of oppression, years of racism, years of separation, and now almost I don't know sixty years later, we're kind of surprised that we're having an issue with black and brown people in law enforcement. <laughs> I mean, it's like. You know, it was birthed out of this place. There is a sense of you need to rethink this whole thing, reevaluate, uproot, replant, you know, to uh, to start over. So so um, you were vocal early on. I tried to, as best I could, lend some support to uh, African-American friends and the cause of racial reconciliation, you know, from my perch in Canada. Yeah. Um, but one of the experiences a lot of leaders had, and we're recording this weeks in advance of air, so I don't know what's going to be true August 4th. It's just that kind of year. You know what that's sure. like, Sam. Sure. Um, but a lot of leaders, white and black um, and brown, were getting beat up like crazy for saying anything on social media, you included. 
Can you walk us through the dynamics of that a little bit? Because I think there's a lot of leaders who are afraid to post and not to date this interview too much, but there's a very well-known preacher who's being dragged. You know, he said something that probably he shouldn't have said and, you know, he's a good guy and, you know, he's, he's like, man, people, people are just getting pilloried. And I imagine there's a lot of leaders who could perhaps be excited about some of the change that's coming and committed deeply to racial justice and reconciliation, but who are like, Sam, listen, man, I'm going to support you privately. But if I say anything publicly, I'm going to get creamed on social media. What would you say to them? Wow. Um, I think I'll talk about that and then I'll talk about how I was getting slaughtered. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, because you were getting, I mean, we went back and forth. You were getting slaughtered too. It's not just- yeah, like, all sides. Um, I, you know, I would say to my white leader friends, especially, um, that we need your voice more than ever. Mm-hmm. And so choosing to say nothing is not an option. And when I say it's not an option, I'm not demanding you. I'm saying it doesn't help us. It, um, it hurts. We need you. As, you know, we talk about kind of the price of influence. And the price, you know, what? Why does God give it to us? You know, um, I think there's a there's a section of people all around the world, of black and brown people all around the world, screaming for help. Mm. And one of the and one of the biggest ways you can help is by speaking up. Now, I do think when you speak up, um, you have to you have to be humble. So one of the things that I'm really passionate about right now, Carrie, is helping my white brothers and sisters that are speaking up that I'm very proud of and excited that they are doing that. Um, I want to help them approach it the right way um, because I don't want them to be quiet because we need them. You know, the worst thing for them to do would would be to be quiet when, especially at a time. Or or do one repost, you know, the week something happens Right. And, then, and then go no. silent again and back to business as usual. So you got a lot of white leaders listening. Do you want to <laughs> talk? Yeah, talk, I, I, I posted, and this is going to be a little strong, but I think it'll be helpful. I posted something recently that said a message to my white leader friends. Now is not the time to be prideful concerning racism. I believe that God is cleaning house from a prophetic lens mm. And you don't want to get caught in the crossfire. And so what I simply meant by that is as God is, I think God is pruning our world right now. I can't tell you how many leaders I sit on the phone with, white leaders specifically, helping them navigate. I mean, from Africa to South America to Australia to America to Canada. I mean, white leaders everywhere going like, you know, the aboriginals were riding in Australia. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. And indigenous in people in Canada and blacks in Canada and brown people in Canada. Yeah, yeah for sure. Like, And so my, my, my thing with all of them is, hey, you know, like God, it's obvious that God is doing something with this. Otherwise, it would not be as big. I think if you have a spiritual antenna at all, um, then you can kind of sense that God is working on this right now. And so what you want to do is, you know, you want to be as humble as possible in this as God himself, I believe is, is, is pruning a lot of these areas to make the world what it should be. Um, and so, I mean, which is equality for all, which is dignity, which is love, which is all of this. 
you know, unfortunately, you know, sometimes when God moves, he moves a little bit aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> which, which that I would be consistent with from, scripture. Yeah. Right. From the Old Testament to some of the New Testament. Like, okay. Um, and so he is moving a little bit. And so I, my, my thing with, I think my, to my wide leader friends, I always tell them, if you're as humble as you can be in this, you'll be fine. Because God loves humble people. It's the prideful that we have seen him knock down with a vengeance. What is the difference between someone who's being prideful? Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean that to be a trivial question, but yeah. how would I be proud about my position and how would I show humility? What does What's the difference? I, I think one of the ways to be prideful is, is, is just having an approach that is Angry, you know, that I'm, I'm angry about what happened and I'm angry and I and, and you respond out of that anger in a way that is I'm justified in my anger, which ignores the concept. You know, when people talk about and, and please hear me in the spirit when I say white privilege, because people hate white people hate the term. Um, just hear me when I say that. What, what, what they're talking about, I, I, I renamed it white advantage because it's easier for white people oh, okay. to understand. Um, while I still agree with the term white privilege, <laughs> I, I renamed it white advantage so that they can understand what I was saying. It means because of the color of your skin, you've had an advantage in life because of the history of our country, so on and so on. Which, so which I, I, think we I all buy would, that. Tell me, tell me yeah. what white, tell me in your mind what white privilege is or white advantage is. Yeah. Um, white and, and this is what it kind of shows up as now, um, because I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult to understand is because it was very apparent and very blatant in the 60s and in the 70s. You could just see it. We literally couldn't go in the same restaurant. We literally couldn't drink out of the same water fountain. We literally couldn't get the same loans. We could not go in the banks. You know what I'm saying? It was, just, mm -hmm. it was so apparent. You're not supposed to buy a house in this neighborhood, period. Right. Like it was just yeah. like, no, you're a black and that's a policy that we have in this neighborhood that black people cannot stay here. And so get out of here. You know, so that was it was very that it, I, that's that's white privilege. You know what I'm saying? Like at the highest level, white advantage, if you will. I think what it shows up as now are systems that have been put in place. I'm going to get kind of deep mm -hmm. families that have been in power for such a long time. Um, that, uh, that, that, that has matriculated into 2020 and we are living in the results of those systems set up in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s. We're living in the result of what those systems set up to be for, for America to be. And so what it looks like now is, well, 80% of the CEOs of the largest companies in our world are white, or let's just go America are white. 20%, even maybe lower, 15% are minority. You start to go, okay, now, how did that happen? <laughs> right, right, yeah, you go. Yeah. And, and so then you, and, and then what it looks like is, okay, well, we got to hire for this company. Well, how do people hire? They hire out of their immediate circle. Mm -hmm. And so if your immediate circle is white, which for all of us, I think we would all agree, most of us live, and, 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 and there are outliers that, live, that have multicultural lives and so on and so forth. But most of us tend to live in homogen in a homogenous world where we hang around our people, right? Like I grew up all black. I hung around all black people. Mm -hmm. Most white hang around a lot of white people. It's not that you are 
a bad person. That's just where you grew up. It's kind of that. And so when you hire out of your friend circle, what does that look like? Well, if you're a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you hire out of your immediate friend circle, everyone at the top is white. And then everyone below them is white. And then everyone below them is white. And so, it's just, and so that's so an example of white privilege. And what it is, it's the result of a system. So how do you break it? You have to break the system. Mm-hmm. You have to shock the system. Because it's the system that we're living in now that is now starting to work against us. And so I could go on and on and give example after example after example. But if I were to sum it up, I would say that there are systems that were put in place a long time ago that that is obvious for us, if we know the history of this country, to favor white people that are still living today, that no one has changed. So now we need to change it. And, and, and I would say this. Good, well-meaning white people have not changed it, not because they didn't want to. They just didn't know. Right. And so now that it's a system of, hey, people of color need you. There's some discrimination happening. There's some this, this, you know, and and we need you to shock the system a little bit so that everything that's white can be changed and be now more multicultural. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, no, Sam, that's so helpful. Uh, you know, and it's interesting. It's not what you know, it's who you know. That's an expression that's been around forever. When I was younger as a leader, I always thought that was about, oh, uh, you know, maybe somebody here was the best candidate for the job, but we picked you because we kind of got you in, but you didn't really deserve the job. But then I realized, you know, much later in life that the way you describe it is actually way more accurate, that it's not what you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know is not about, oh, I'm going to let you in even though you don't belong here. It's like, no, I went through my network and I just, hey, you know, I I happen to know that this guy, you know, Jake is awesome because I know his dad and I know he's very capable. And so I'm going to hire Jake before I hire a stranger I don't know, regardless of the color of their skin. But what happens is when 80% of the CEOs are white, you end up hiring 80% 80% white people, right? Just because, well, I may know Sam, but I don't really, like, I don't really know Sam. So why would I hire you when I know this guy and I know he's got a good kid? And so it ends up being kind of unintentional. Is that what you're saying? 100%. And what it results in is what is discrimination. That's, it's, right. it's, that's what it results in. So then you, as a black person, you go, how come all the Google executives are this? I don't know about, I don't think Google is that way. I don't know Google. Mm. No, I don't <laughs> But either. I'm saying, how come these, all of these massive companies that are making all these decisions, how come they're led by all white people? Right. And how come they're making all these decisions? And then, and then when you start to look at the products, it, what happens is it all trickles down. And so when you, so when you have certain people, and I'm going to get a little bit more deep. When you have certain people in certain environments that live a certain way that are a certain color, they also think a certain way. So now when they encounter somebody that doesn't think like them, it's wrong per se, but it's because they don't understand it. And then it becomes, well, we're not going to do that idea. We're going to favor this idea because it's something I understand. Can I translate because it's something white and I'm white, so I get it. And so I'm going to say no to this black idea. I'm going to say no to this black loan. I'm going to say no to this black community. I'm going to say no to this black student. I'm going to say no to that because I don't understand it. And I'm going to favor what I understand. But it's and it's all a result of just, you know, all that. Well, and I get it now. Like one of the things I've been trying to do is uh, to learn a lot over the last little while. And you've helped with that, as have some others. 
And because, you know, you think, oh, if it's discrimination, it has to be, well, I don't like black people or I don't like brown people or I don't like people who don't look like me, right? But that's not it at all. It's much more subtle than that sometimes. There are definitely people like that. It's like, I'm never hiring someone who looks different than me. Okay, there's definitely people like that. But you're saying it's, it's more complex. And I think you're right because you're saying, no, it's just, I don't, I don't know. We're looking for communicator and your style just doesn't really fit our style or our congregation. It's not about the color of your skin. Is that fair? Well, Carrie. Is that fair? Can I just stop? Can I just stop you right there? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. (laughs) You're hitting it. You are breaking this down. Keep going. Keep going. I was. No, I'm I'm just trying to learn and I'm trying to see it. And I think I see it a lot more clearly. Because uh, before 2020, you know, if people, the white term white privilege has been around for a long time, also used by white people on white people. And there was a part of me, I never said this publicly, would be like, I can't help that I was born with the, this color of skin, that I come from right. Northern European descent. Like, that's not right. my fault. And yeah, I hustled hard and there's lots of people who didn't. But I'm seeing it in a whole new way. And you, you've been so, so helpful with that. So now I want to get to, okay, so I am in a place where, you know, with some exceptions, a lot of my friends are white, you know, and, and you know, what do I do about that? How do I, how do I fix the system? Wow. So I'm not the president of the United States. I'm yeah. not, you know, I have a little tiny sphere of influence. So what do I do with my little sphere of influence, Sam, uh, to help make change? Let me first of all say this. For every white leader that's listening and that is out there, the fact that you would even be open and the fact that you're leaning in and the fact that you're passionate about making a change is amazing. And I want to encourage you in that because we need it. I want you to hear a person of color say, thank you for helping to right the wrongs of history. Thank you for leaning in. Thank you. Please don't stop leaning forward. And even though some of this stuff is hard to understand and hard to accept, right? And and even though some of it you may take personally, I just, I appreciate you sticking down in the journey, mm-hmm. on the journey with us, because this is on the heart of God. And this, and more importantly, it you're, you're helping image bearers that need it the most. Yeah. yeah. And I just, I want to say that. Okay. I, I got emotional. I just felt the Lord. That's awesome. Um, so I think when it, when we talk about solutions, um, how do we, how do we break the system? I'm going to tell you, Carrie, yeah. after doing this work for the last six years in predominantly white spaces and multicultural spaces, and even in black spaces, but more so predominantly white, I would say the only way, and there may be others, but I believe the largest way, the only way to really fix the system is you have to break it. Mm-hmm. If I would say a different way, you have to completely shock it. What does that mean? What it means is I was working with an organization, and now we keep talking about staffing, but a lot of these are leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, yeah. this flows into content, this flows into marketing, this flows, and if you're a banker, this flows into like money and giving. This flows into colleges. This flows into admission. I mean, this is this this concept hits everything. Uh, it, it what it means is this: I was consulting an organization, Carrie, and they hired eight new staff members after four years of doing race racial diversity work, 
and wanting to diversify and wanting to shock this in break, you know, fix the system of white advantage, white privilege, whatever you call it. And after four years, Carrie, they stood up eight staff members and all of them were white. So I'm in the room going, man, they're they're quote unquote woke now. They should know, right? I'm I like, I'm like, man, they're gonna be sad, right? So I'm thinking I need to go and pat everybody on the back and go, it's okay, we're gonna get there, <laughs> you know. <what> I'm saying? <laughs> like, and I went around and nobody saw it, Carrie. Nobody saw it. Nobody even saw it. They stood eight new staff members up one by one, oh, and my. nobody noticed that they were all white, but me. And so I started going, first of all, I'll ask the question, how did this happen? So I'm like, why didn't you see it? So then I went on an intellectual journey. I started reading Harvard books. I started looking at, you know, entrepreneur.com, magazines, articles from, 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 from some really smart professors on why white people can't see white things. <laughs> That's a great title. And I discovered it's it's a there's an actual there's an there's actually an academic term for it. It's called white normativity. And white normativity is a concept that simply means if you've grown up white, if all you've seen is white, white is normal. It's almost like that that metaphor where you know it's like a cartoon. There's fish swimming in the water, and someone says, "How's the water today?" And they're like, "Water? What's water? Right. I don't even see it." What? What? They're like, "Oh, so for them." It was normal, Carrie. So it and, and so a large part of that is pointing out the fact that, hey, when you see something that's all white, it doesn't mean it's all right. Mm. So you have to so you have to now condition your mind to see something different. So that was one. But two, and this is talking about shocking the system. I had a conversation with the CEO. CEO was devastated. Because he didn't see it or she didn't see it. I don't even think he saw it for real he or she, and devastated. And then he said, you know, we have to change this. Like, we got to do something drastic because if we don't, like, there's no way. And I went, it was each department. And, and, and by the way, how, how they all get hired is they, had, they went through their phone and they hired their friends or the people, the friend of their friends. And that the friend kind of, of is how it works a lot. Yeah. That, that's how it works. And so, and they were in positions of power. So we're, we're repeating the narrative. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so here's what they did, Carrie. They said, and people are going to hate this. They're going to hate what I'm getting ready to say. <laughs> but I want you to think about the alternative of what I'm getting ready to say. So in other words, what else would you do? So they said the next 10 hires cannot be a white person. Wow. Just can't be. And they be. said that it can't be. They said we... I mean, we're talking about an organization of 200 employees, you know, 300 employees. Right. In all. So it's not like you have five employees and the next 10 can't be white. It's like, no, yeah. we're talking about we can't stop, break this cycle. And it's 300 of us in here and we have to diversify. Right. And we have to give people of color a chance. And we have to we have to break the system of white advantage. And so they said the next 10 hires have to be people of color. And here's what they said, Carrie. And they obviously couldn't put this on the document because it could probably get legal and, you know. Get yeah, crazy. yeah, reverse discrimination, whatever whatever the charge yeah, yeah, might yeah. be. Yeah. But privately they said, and I'm sharing this publicly so that people know, they said, whatever you have to do to get a person of color 
that is competent, educated, and knows how to do this, I need you to do. And I and whether that takes us a year or two or even six months, I am he got so passionate about it, Carrie. He said, I will not let this organization continue in this direction. And that's an example of breaking the system. Yep. And you know what happened, Carrie? No. They found him. <laughs> I think it was Katie Cole who was on this podcast years, a couple of years ago. We were talking about uh, gender in church because, I mean, you get in the rooms that you and I are in. It's a lot of white males, let's be honest, in That's evangelical right. world. And people, or maybe it was Danielle Strickland. I can't remember. But it's like, Either, right. we can't find any female preachers. And the line was, uh, maybe you better look harder. <laughs> and, and you know, I'm like, yep, you're right. I, we just have to look harder. And because when we, when we are challenged, we rise to the challenge, Carrie. Well, people, try to, people go ahead. No, go ahead, Carrie. Go no. Ahead, go and ahead. I mean, I mean, you, you just, I think you, I think you absolutely nailed it. It's the Rolodex system. It's like, who do I know? And so let's give a lot of white leaders the benefit of the doubt. We do not all deserve the benefit of the doubt, but you know, there are people who are not saying I'm not racist because they're just trying to say they're not racist, but they would be like, Sam, I'd hire you in a heartbeat. But the yep. problem is they don't know you and they don't know people who look like you. And as a result, they talk to their cousin whose kid is looking for a job, yep. who's an awesome kid who happens to be white. And they're like, man, I'd hire him in a heartbeat. And so we perpetuate the system. Yeah. Yes. And that, that's how you become a part of perpetuating the problem, even though you're a great person. I think the same is true for us. Like, there, I think black normativity is real too, in terms of like, I, when I first started trying to diversify, and I have to help black churches with this when I'm talking to them that want to be more diverse, because because they do. I'm going, hey, can't be all black ad. Right. Switch it up a bit. Um, obviously, it leans a little bit more heavy towards the white side. But so I think that's one concept. But I think the second concept, Carrie, is for a large, for a long time in America. Um, White people moved away from black people. Yep. Called they call it white flight. I know that term. Yeah. And and really, can we just be honest? It was a result of racism. I mean, that's yeah, what it was. Hundred percent. And you can call it whatever. You can call it prejudice. You can call it we wanted to, you know, keep our neighborhoods safe. We wanted to be a certain way. We I get it. Um, but at the end of the day, it started. That started with racism. Um, and, I, and I would probably venture to say that you probably live in an all-white neighborhood. And if you trace it back to when it probably first began, it probably has been white for a long time. Oh, it's been white for 200 years. I mean, that's just the Canadian yeah. settlement patterns. And it's this, I live in the country. So in, it's the cities sure. that have become more diverse with immigration. And that's starting to change here, which I think is super encouraging. Like we've lived here for 25 years. Yeah, I think it was like 1% or 2% <laughs> diverse when we yeah. moved here. Now it's probably closer to 10%, which I think is awesome. Um, but it's just, it's one of those things where uh, it wasn't white flight or anything like that. These are just historic patterns and, you know, yeah. European immigrants in, in an area for many, many years and not a lot of new immigration settling in these patterns, although that's beginning to change. Um, wow. Keep going. I had a question and it slipped my mind. So. <laughs> no, I think, you know, I, I think to that, you know, 
I do think it's worth asking the question, how do we change that? You know, how do we diversify it? How do we, you know, even make people of color more comfortable with moving out there? Even asking the question, what would happen if people of color moved there? Would people feel some type of way? Right. Or would it be normal? You know, so it, it, it just I think what we are in our world is making us rethink everything and just go question everything. And I think that would speak to I had a conversation with Levi Lusco, you know, who's in Montana. And he's like, yeah, it's not particularly diverse here either. And you got a lot of people living in middle America listening to this. Uh, we heard this about coronavirus all the time, right? Hey, I'm not New York. I'm not California. Like, it's not an issue here. And I think that's very easy to do <laughs> is to say, I don't I don't live in New York City, so it's not an yeah. issue here. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I love what Tim Keller says, and I've heard him say that, that um, when you're talking about white flight and what happens, he says, this happens in cities too, right? Like when cities begin to change, what happens is churches move to the suburbs. You've seen that right? Where churches moved to the suburbs. He goes, if you look at the gospel, the gospel is actually the only example, I think he was preaching through Jonah, where uh, the city gets wicked. And I'm not saying diversity is wicked. That's not at all. But the city, the city starts to, you know, become a place where people are leaving, but the church moves in, the prophet moves in, the church moves in. And I think that should be the solution for the gospel is like when everybody, if, if other people are running, we move in. If, if it seems to be too difficult for some people or too tense for some people, that's where the gospel moves in. And so the thrust of the gospel mm. is toward the challenge, not away from the challenge. Um, do you want to, t- any comments on that? And I want to talk to you about how you got beat up on social media. And then uh, we got to one of my questions today. So thank you, Sam. This was another productive interview. And uh, I love it whenever we get together. Uh, but talk to anything you would say about running toward the challenge rather than away from it. That's what I was trying to say with Keller. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Jesus is always caught running towards the mess. Yeah. The people that nobody wants to be around, he's running towards them, right? The people that are making all types of mistakes, he's going after them. The, the tension in the room, he's I think Jesus is a great example for us. And even the, the the story of the Good Samaritan, which is an amazing story when when, you know, when he's asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? You know, like um, I, I think that is that is a story about racism and going across, you know, putting down our political affiliations and ideologies and our cultural, you know, uh, histories and coming across the line to love our brother. Um I, I think that Jesus is always running towards the mess. And I think as as believers, we have to run towards anything that's separating us. What's Whatever is separating us. And as we move into an election cycle in this country, in terms of America, we have to run towards each other. We have to not let our political ideologies divide us. We have to, and, and I think this is going to be a critical election. <laughs> as we look at what the next eight years of our world can be, I think the choice, the choice is so important. And I think it would behoove all of us to spend time with each other. Cause I think well, if we'll spend time, it'll give great context. And it occurred to me too, uh, cause I've done a series of interviews. Uh, I think these will air on this podcast, but I remember uh, doing one and just thinking, you know, Coronavirus is going to pass, as devastating as it is. Coronavirus is going to pass. 
But when you look at racial reconciliation, I think actually this is the issue that will define this generation. That 50 years from now, looking back on it, coronavirus will be like, yeah, there was a pandemic, but it's like, look at what happened. It'll be like the mid-1960s in America. Uh, it has a potential mm-hmm. to be that. Uh, Sam, to wrap up, and this has, been, this has been so rich and so good, Talk to us about why you got beat up on social media. And, uh, you know, I think there's a certain level of leaders are tired, leaders are exhausted, nerves are frayed. This is a difficult issue on top of a difficult issue that we were already navigating. Um, You got hammered on social media from every side, including by some of your brothers and sisters in the African-American community. Talk about what that was, where the opposition came from, how you dealt with it, and then encourage leaders who might be afraid to say more because they're just tired. Yeah, I think what I would say, Carrie, is, you know, it was so difficult for me in the beginning because I was I was pursuing an MLK route, you know, a Martin Luther King Jr. route. I when I looked at how he created social change, which I think everyone would agree that he was the greatest leader of social one of the greatest, at least if not the greatest leader of social change in our world today. There's not a continent that you can go to that does not know Martin Luther King Jr. because of what he did in this country. And so as I'm following his lead, right, one of the things that he did really well was stand in the middle. He stood in the middle of both worlds while speaking truth to power and seeking to create change that would eventually turn into reconciliation. And so... As I tried to stand right in the middle, in the middle of this, some would say the second pandemic that we're going through right now, which is the racial tensions in our world, um, I got hit from both sides, man. And there were some black people that felt like I wasn't militant enough. There were some white people that felt like I was talking about it too much. And and, And then there were people in the middle that were just confused and trying to figure it all out. And so for me, Carrie, I had a come to Jesus, if you will, moment with myself and with Jesus. And I realized there's no place in this fight that I can stand and not get shot. Yeah. Unless I don't fight at all. And I knew that that wasn't an option. But I'll be honest, for a moment, I gave up. I said, I just. You know, I I can't win. And. It was Jesus, you know, and it was God and it was MLK that night, you know, that I I had the spiritual experience. And for me, as I watched MLK, what I realized through his interviews about rioting, through his interviews about nonviolence, through his interviews about social change, through, through his interviews about speaking truth to power, I realized he always got hit on all sides. Always. Yep. There were black leaders that criticized him publicly about him being too soft. There were white leaders that thought he was trying to move too fast and that he was saying too much and that- He was a he communist. Was a, and he was a communist. He was right. People say today, people think that they would love Dr. King today, but I think black Dr. King would be screaming Black Lives Matter. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I think he would be screaming it. I don't know that he would necessarily be endorsing all of the policies of the organization. And frankly, I didn't even know there was an organization most black people didn't even know. And I think the hashtag itself is being hijacked 
politically by all of these policies. And here's what we need to do this. And we need to try this. And, we, and I separate the hashtag from the organization. Um, even though I, cause I, I, frankly, I don't know much about the organization, but the hashtag itself around the world just simply means the liberation of black and brown people everywhere. Mm-hmm. I believe that he would be saying that today. I don't think people would like him as much as they like him now. And he was, and, and they didn't like him back then. And no, so he was me, very controversial. Yeah. At one time he was the most hated man in America. I mean, it was like, but he changed our world. So I had to get the confidence to go, I got, I'm going to pick where I stand and I'm just going to take the bullets. What would you say to white leaders who are, and I'm sure this is implication above that, but as a white man myself, who are like, Sam, that's good for you. You're African-American. You're right in the middle of it. But like, I got people who are going to leave my church. I got board members who are going to get mad. I got donors who might just disappear. I could lose influence over all of this. It's just easier for me to let someone else do something. And I don't want to, I don't want to say anything anymore. What I would say to them is, I think maybe one of our biggest themes for this, for this particular show, this episode, and it is, you know, what is the price of influence? What's the real price of influence? Why does God give us influence? Is it so that we can protect ourselves? Or is it so that we can leverage everything we have to make a difference? And I would say this, Carrie, I, I lost some followers, but I gained more than I lost. You're going to take a hit anytime you stand up for what's right. People hated Jesus. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they killed him. Uh, yeah, ultimately, it was his opponents who nailed him to the cross. They killed him. Um, my question is, is what are you willing to give up for this world to look better? Mm-hmm. And I would challenge you and say, again, what is the price of influence? And could this be a test? from God to see where your heart truly lies. Oh, that's good. Does it lie with your image or with your big buildings or with your, or does it lie with the cross? Or the kingdom coming. Or the kingdom coming. And I'll say this as an encouragement. Whenever you stand up for the kingdom, you win. (laughs) I'm with you, Sam. Right? You don't lose. God actually increases your platform. He grows your influence. You may lose what something on the outside for a, for a moment, but you stand up for the kingdom and God's going to back you every time. So, yeah. And you did the right thing at the end of the day. Um, well, Sam, anything else you want to say in closing? This has been so helpful for me. I'm trying to learn. You're a great teacher. Thank you for helping me see things I didn't see, um, correct things that need correcting and address things that need addressing. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, one, Carrie, you know I love you, man. Um, <laughs> it's mutual. I, I feel like you're always on the right side of history. You're always doing what you need to do with your influence. Not that I'm the judge. You've invested in me more more than many leaders. Um, I'm just so grateful to know you. I mean, it, you are, you're an incredible leader to follow, and you're I mean, you're you're worth following. And I think I think the last thing I would say is, we've never been more postured for change in this country and in this world, as it pertains to the issue of injustice, 
and racism in the last 40 years than we are right now. Mm. Now is the time to make the move. Put all your cards on the table. Stand up for what's right and see God do the miraculous. That's what I say. And it would really help me if you bought this book. <laughs> a greater story. Actually, you know, just that section you talked about, about growing up black in America, I'm really looking forward to digging into that more um, uh, because I think it's really important for those of us who didn't grow up in that context to understand more, to learn, to listen, uh, all of that. Sam, this isn't the last conversation by any stretch, but it's been a great one. Thank you, my friend. And uh, if people want to follow you online, Sam Collier on Instagram. And uh, what website? I mean, obviously, Amazon, everywhere books are sold. But if people want to check out all things Sam, where do they find it? Yeah, just go to agreaterstory.org. Go to agreaterstory.org and you'll find everything. Carrie, you're the man. You're the man, Sam. Thank you. Well, I think that more than delivered on the promise at the beginning of the episode. What a great conversation with Sam Collier. If you want to check out his book, links to that or show notes or even transcripts, you can find it all at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 358. And coming up next episode, we have got Levi Lusco. Now, Levi's been on for a little bit, but he's coming back. And we are going to talk about how his church has responded to COVID. Um, it's going to be powerful. And I think Levi will give you one of the best snippets, the best previews of what the future church could look like in this conversation. I was really encouraged after it. Here's an excerpt. I I would think we will never approach um, things the same way again. I think, honestly, I think the, out of the scope and scale of all that we're doing, I think that the in-person gatherings in our minds will be, somewhat like the traditional service that many churches used to offer. You know, this is our services. And for those who like the old school, we have a traditional service. I feel like God is opening our eyes to see the blue ocean of opportunity of seeing, um, regardless of where you live, you can be a part of it. You can be resourced, you can be equipped, and you can be sent. That happening on such a grand scale that, that the 13 locations we had going into this with a, oh yeah, we have a church online also is almost now like we have a church online and we have some brick and mortar locations. I definitely feel like it's caused me to look at everything in a completely Mm -hmm. backwards fashion. So that's next on the podcast subscribers. You know the drill. You get it automatically for free. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Uh, I only listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And now it's time for the What I'm Thinking About segment. And what I'm thinking about today is whether you should close or reopen your church. I've got a few thoughts on that. It's brought to you by our partners, Remodel Health. You can visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Be one of the churches or not-for-profits that's already saved $1.5 million in the last 18 months simply by going to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry and get $20 off your individual ticket rate to the Global Leadership Summit now. It's right around the corner, like two days. It's not too late. Use the coupon code CARRYPODCAST when you check out at globalleadership.org. So you really don't want to miss that event. Well, uh, I want to talk about reopening your church because, I mean, as I'm recording this, and we're working a little bit in advance because of summer, 
but, you know, cities are shutting down again and the coronavirus is surging. And what if this is the new normal? I know not forever. I get that. But what if it is? Uh, I think churches have to rethink more deeply than we have been rethinking over the last six months. So a few thoughts about this. Number one, the mission is eternal, but the methods are not. Almost every day on my social channels, I hear from leaders who are like, but we got to reopen. We got to reopen. Look, look, look. You don't have to reopen. There is nothing you know, what do I say? <laughs> I, I get pretty passionate about this, okay? There is nothing magic to a church building. It's the way we have done it for thousands of years. I understand that. But the mission, the mission is eternal. The methods are not. And way too many leaders get wedded to their methods and they forget or lose the mission. You almost throw up your hands and go, you know what, we can't, yeah, we just can't really do much for Jesus as long as our building is closed. That's just not true. I really believe the future has been digital for a long time anyway. Think about it. You're listening to a podcast. Chances are we've never met. I have not met 99.9% .9 of my listeners, but we have a meaningful relationship. So the digital revolution is here to stay. It's an exceptional opportunity for churches. And right now as a church leader, you have options that are not available to every manufacturer, restaurant owner, airlines, hotels. I mean, you can do far more for the gospel than most can. But churches that overfocus on their buildings run the risk of becoming like shopping malls in the age of Amazon, taxis in the age of Uber, cable TV in the age of Netflix, Disney Plus, and YouTube. And the church was never a building anyway. And as much as it's easy to say the church was never a building, for centuries we behaved as though it was. So I think in the future, Christians who realize they are the church will have a much bigger long-term impact than Christians who simply go to church or consume content. Another reason to think, okay, maybe, you know, closing our church building again or restricting in-person services isn't the end of the world is the world is watching. And if you're being reckless with people's health, uh, I promise you unchurched people are just forming one more opinion about your church or the church. So wisdom often shows itself in the form of restraint. And then finally, the decision might get made for you. See, when you're pushing against the tide going, we're going to stay open no matter what, or we're going to reopen no matter what, okay? I mean, the government can just come in and shut you down. Or the community can come in and shut you down, right? So the decision might get made for you. You are in a much better strategic position as a church leader if you make that decision rather than have it made for you. Ultimately, in leadership, your unwillingness to make a tough decision means the decision could be made for you, and that is rarely a great moment. And then finally, and this is the most important thing, guess what? Your church was never closed. Even when it was closed, it wasn't closed. You were open. Your people were active. I'm going to say some more and write some more about this this summer, but I think you could do so much more if you just stopped focusing on your building, started focusing on your community, started focusing on online. And as if you do that, uh, whether your facility toggles between open and closed is kind of irrelevant because your church is very much alive. And leaders who fuel, fund, and celebrate that will have a much stronger future than leaders who don't. So that's just me on my little soapbox. Once again, not the most popular guy in the room, but I think it's really, really important that we get this right and um, man, if you'd like a little bit of leadership uh, nuggets, you can text the word carry my name, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33777, and uh, we will get you that. And then if you want my exclusive offer, which is to help you create a much better cultural value statement, I've got like a shortcut for it I'm pretty excited about. Text the word better values, that's just better values, to 33777. So 
Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you. And to all of our new subscribers and listeners, welcome. We're so glad to have you on board. Back next time with a fresh episode. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.